I was kind of excited this morning because uh, someone actually said, hey, we get to get back to Acts today that, that in the missionary journeys. I'm like, really, someone's excited about the missionary journeys, <laughs> about the, the history? And we, we're doing this because we went through the Gospels, and it made sense, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, in Jesus' earthly ministry. And then we wanted to see what happened to the church afterwards, so the Acts is the history book. It's the thing that uh, Luke wrote that basically puts everything in order chronologically, and we've been uh, going through that. And so we get back to Acts after we just finished Second Thessalonians last week, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. So let, let me review for you real quick. I'll throw a map up there that has a picture of the very first missionary journey and then the second missionary journey. If you look, the big loop that goes uh, all the way out to Macedonia, he, starts, he started here in Antioch, Syria, which is his hometown, Paul we're talking about, Paul and Timothy and Silas. He went up through the churches that he that got started in the very first missionary journey. The first missionary journey just was that short. It's quick. It went to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. So he started out going back through there, and he made it all the way up through Asia, got to Philippi, over to Thessalonica and Berea, and down to Athens and Corinth. And this is really where he is today, is in Corinth. But you'll see as he ends up wrapping up this second missionary journey that he'll make his way over to Ephesus and then back home down to Caesarea and to Jerusalem and back home to Antioch. We get that, we'll wrap up for sure today, his second missionary journey. So let's pick up, let's pick up in Acts chapter 18, verse 12. But what you have to know from this right here, what has happened with Paul in the meantime, in the meantime, he has the money that Silas brought to him from Philippi has run out. Remember, uh, Silas had collected a fund from the church at Philippi, and they used that for their ministry resources, and it had run out. So Paul resumes his work as a tent maker along with Priscilla and Aquila. He's making tents, he's providing for himself he's working a job and he refuses to take money from the church at Corinth which is where he is right now we know this because here's the beauty of what we're doing is you can if you have a, a white easel and you're trying to paint a picture of all these missionary journeys you take the whole New Testament and you pull from each book and you can paint this beautiful picture so he hasn't written this letter to Corinth yet because he's there ministering, but later on he leaves and he writes this letter at Corinth. And in this letter he says this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, he says, If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Literally, Paul's saying, hey, when we were in Corinth, we were not a burden to you. We fended for ourselves, we made tents, and we took care of ourselves. And so he's 
reminding them of this. But we know where Paul is. So in Acts chapter 18, this was actually around the summer of 53. And we can get a specific date because he's mentioning specific names here. And we know from our history books that these people served during these years. Verse 12, it says, While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united tack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. Lucius Junius Gallio, that was his full name according to the history books. He was the governor of southern Greece. He was the older brother of Seneca. You ever heard of Seneca? He was the Stoic philosopher and playwright who actually tutored Emperor Nero. So now this Gallio guy is a big deal in history books. And he is now dealing with Paul. It says, while Gallio was proconsul of Ikea, the Jews made a united ta- attack against Paul. Imagine if uh, your cohorts from the past decided to come up against you. Like, I, I grew up Southern Baptist. If all the Southern Baptists decided to come against me and go against what I was saying and things like that, that Paul is just feeling defeated that, hey, I, I am one of you and now you're like attacking me. This is literally what's happened right here. So they're in this little area. If you, uh, I'll show you a map here in just a second. Let, actually, let's go back. Jim, can I go back to that, that missionary map? Uh, Ikea, you can see right here, is on the left in the green area where Corinth is. It's that whole little island and Galileo was the proconsul of that whole area, that region right there. And uh, it was a part of, obviously, Western Greece. And <clears throat> the capital was Petros at the time. That was like the third largest city at the time. So here he is. He's in here, and he's been brought before Galilee in the council. It says in verse 13, This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. (laughs) So the Jews bring Paul in and he says, he's saying things that are against the law. What does this actually mean? They broke the law. They literally broke the law by attacking Paul and forcing him to go to the court but yet they're saying Paul's the one that broke the law. Think about this. That wasn't the very first time the Jews had attacked Paul. We can go back to Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17, and we can see that the Jews were constantly nagging after Paul. But Here's what happened in verse 14. It says, as Paul was about to open his mouth, literally they brought him to the council and said, hey, he's breaking laws and Paul gets ready to speak. But as Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. (laughs) But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of such things. Now, don't forget that Paul was a Roman citizen. 
Paul was prepared to defend himself here in this court. But this turned out to be absolutely unnecessary because Galileo basically said, you know, I'm not going to deal with this. This isn't my issue. The pro-council immediately saw that the real issue was not the application of the Roman law or the interpretation of the Jewish religion. So he, he refused to try the case. This has nothing to do with me, he said. This is your problem. You go deal with it. It was political division and distraction. You, you guys, we're living in this world right now, right? It's like you're going to say one thing to cause a distraction in this area because you want something to happen in this area. It's the same thing that's happening today right here in our own country. The Jews and Paul were divided because Paul believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So now what can we do to attack the other side? We'll do anything that we can. We'll say anything that we can. Verse 16 says this, so he drove them from the tribunal. This is Galilee, drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenus, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Galileo. Uh, okay, so here, here's the situation. You've got so whatever his name is, Sothenus, Sosthenes. He's the leader of the synagogue, and he gets beat up. Well, why does he get beat up? Because he's a Jew, and he's supposed to think like the Jews, but he's obviously let Paul come in and teach. Where did Paul always go to teach? Synagogue. Oh, and if you remember, if you track back to Thessalonica and some of the other cities berea some of the synagogue leaders became believers remember that some of the the own synagogue leaders came to know jesus as the messiah we have no idea what sothenus did if he if he was a believer if he just didn't support the jews we don't know or was this just a flagrant display of anti-Semitism by the public? It doesn't say. There's no clear picture of this. Now, here's what we do know is that Paul talks about a Sothenus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, Sothenus helped me write this letter. Well, if it's the same Sothenus, then he too got converted and the Jews were upset and it would naturally make sense for them to beat him up because he was aligning himself with Paul. Or, think about this. He wasn't a very good synagogue leader. He got beat up because the Jews didn't agree with him. And guess who came to his rescue? Paul, and possibly became a believer after Paul ministered to him. 
the Jews had literally tried to force the Roman proconsul to declare Christian faith illegal, but Galileo ended up doing just the opposite. He said, you guys go deal with this on your own, and then we see what happened. Chaos followed. In verse 18, it says this. After staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Centria because of a vow he had taken. All right, so literally they're getting ready to cross the Aegean Sea, but before they get to the sea, they get to this little city of Centria. It's just outside of Corinth. And after spending some time in Corinth, Paul leaves. It's time for them to move on. But watch what happens right here. He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him on their way, and they stop at this town probably about seven miles east of Corinth. It's a seaport for Corinth. And there's believers there. How do I know that there's believers there? Because in Paul's letter to Romans in chapter 16, verse 1, he says this, I commend to you Sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church of Centria. So there's already believers there in Centria. There's a church there. And it was here that Paul had his head shaved. Why would Paul have his head shaved right there? Because we said just a couple of weeks ago that he let his hair grow out because he probably took a vow, that vow being probably a Nazarite vow. Who else took a Nazarite vow? Who? John the Baptist took a Nazarite vow. Who else? Samson took the Nazarite vow. And what's the one thing that you do as a Nazarite vow? You don't cut your hair. That comes from number six. Watch this. The Lord instructed Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When a man or a woman takes a special vow, a Nazarite vow, to consecrate himself to the Lord, he is to abstain from wine and beer. He must not drink vinegar made from wine or from beer. He must not drink any grape juice or eat fresh grapes or raisins. He is not to eat anything produced by the grapevine from the seeds to skin during the period of his consecration. You must not cut his hair throughout the time of his vow of consecration. He may be holy until the time is completed during which he consecrates himself to the Lord. He is to let the hair of his head grow long. He must not go near a dead body during the time he consecrates himself to the Lord. He is not to defile himself for his father or mother or his brother or sister. And when they die, while, they mar while the mark of consecration to his God is on his head, he is holy to the Lord during the time of consecration. So literally, he couldn't drink, couldn't partake in drink, he couldn't cut his hair, and he couldn't get around dead bodies. That was the Nazarite vow. We assume that this is what Paul did when he let his hair grow and he obviously didn't get it cut. Now, Numbers is part of the Old Covenant. 
Paul's teaching new covenant, yet he takes an old covenant vow. Why in the world would he do that? Because isn't Paul already consecrated? Doesn't he already have a new heart? Isn't God always with him? Isn't he already holy? Right? So why would he do that? It wasn't a matter of salvation, but probably just personal devotion to the Lord. I want to do this. I know it's Old Covenant, but I want to be as close to the Lord as possible, so I'm going to consecrate myself and do these things of an Old Covenant vow. We're not really told why he took this vow. We just have to make an assumption. You guys get that way too, don't you? Don't you make promises to God or you want to get closer? Or you, there's just sometimes this feeling of I need support. I need to do something. I need to... I believe this is where Paul was. It could have just been an expression of his gratitude. God, I'm going to do this because I'm thankful for what you're doing. If you remember right before, like right before uh, these verses that we're covering, he had a vision in his sleep. And the Lord said to him, Paul, you're going to be protected. You're going to be okay no matter what you do. You go into Corinth, you go before the pro-council, you're going to be okay. Remember that? He had this vision. So maybe that's why he took the vow. Maybe this is why he's being committed to the Lord. Uh, and according to the Jewish law in Numbers, that vow had to start in Jerusalem, which is where he started his missionary trip, and it has to end in Jerusalem, which is where he ends up. The hair was cut at this point because he was done with his vow, but he still had to get to Jerusalem. Verse 19, it says this. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there. He's talking about Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. Naturally, what does he do? The first place he goes is back to the Jews. I'm going to the synagogue. I go to the Jews first, to the Greeks second. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined. We have no idea how long he stayed in Ephesus. We know it wasn't very long. But he went in there, stirred the water, says Jesus is the Messiah, and leaves. And everybody's like, wait, what? We want to hear more about this. But he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again, if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. So he literally gets in his boat and set sail back home to Israel. Priscilla and Aquila, they pretty much stay there. They set up their tent ministry. They're going to work there. They're going to stay in Ephesus. And they're going to minister to the people. <clears throat> On verse 22, it says this. On landing at Caesarea... He went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. So on that map, I'll show you here in just a, in fact, let's let's just see that map again real quick. So here he was, he was in Corinth, 
he set sail across Ephesus, came across the Mediterranean Sea all the way down to Caesarea. Remember, there's two different Caesareas. And then he makes his way to Jerusalem, and then he comes up to Antioch, which is where he is from and where he goes to get rest. But he came to Jerusalem to bring them a fund. Remember, he was also collecting a fund for the people in Jerusalem. Uh, Silas headed back to Jerusalem and Timothy went to Lystra. Those were their homes. They all three basically settled in. And then uh, let me sh show him this second map. The second map is a little bit uh, zoomed in. You can see Corinth, then you can see Centria, and then they made their way to Ephesus, and then they made their way home. That's just to show you how they got across the Aegean Sea. Now watch this. We'll get to the last uh, verse before we bell out on this here today. Time has passed. We have no idea. We, If we were at the summer of 53 because of Galileo, we're assuming that spring of the next year, which would be spring of 54 A.D., comes along, verse 23. It says, After some spending some time there in Antioch, he set out, traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. You know what we just started? His third missionary journey. Think about this for a second. I asked Dave, I'm like, uh, if if your son Carl just decided to go do what Paul did, this, he was a fanatic about his faith and just went out and just started traveling around the world to begin to start churches, how would you feel about that? As a parent, how would you feel about that? Knowing what all, Dave was okay with it. He's like, I'd probably buy him a nice pair of Nikes. <laughs> to walk around in. And I'm like, yeah, they probably get stolen. Uh, but think think about Paul. He He's finished his second missionary journey, and all of a sudden he's thinking about his next journey. What am I going to do now? I, I don't want to stay here too long in Antioch. I want to get going. Look, I'll show you a map of his third third journey real quick. This is it. This is the start of it. He starts out in Antioch, and he goes through Galatia, goes through Tarsus, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, and Antioch. That's just the start. This is what it just said in verse. He's going back. He stayed in Antioch for a little bit. Now he's going to go back through Galatia. Watch this. Go to the, the, the bigger picture. So this is where he started, and this is where verse 23 ends up. In the... Second missionary journey, for those of you over there, you can't see where I'm pointing, but he really went northern Asia up this route. Now he's going back down here because he's shooting for Ephesus. Ephesus is right here, and this is where he's going to spend the majority of his time in this third missionary journey. But he literally traces his step back, step back all the way to Corinth from his second missionary journey, and then he comes back, and this is where we'll be for a few weeks as we get through these things. But... Here's some interesting things to think about. While he's in Antioch, Antioch, Syria, he's really plotting three things. 
they're going to set sail for the rest of his ministry, really until his death. I think if Paul's plotting this out, he's probably thinking about multiple trips. This time I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to retrace my steps again. We believe that there is a fourth missionary journey, but sometimes it's not labeled as a missionary journey. and I'll, You'll get to that here in a little bit. But one of the things he plots out, he decides uh, after being in Jerusalem and seeing how they've lived, how, how have they lived? How have they lived in Jerusalem? Acts chapter 2, what they do? They all shared everything together in a community because why? Because there were some that poor and some that were wealthy. There was no middle class. And so they shared everything together. Yet, as a community, they were still poor. And Paul decided, I'm going to go around to all these churches and I'm going to collect a fund for Jerusalem. All these things, this chronic poverty that's going on in Jerusalem, I'm going to take care of it. And it might... If I bring this back to Jerusalem, it might heal the rift between the Hebrews and the Gentiles to know that all these Gentile people have gathered their funds and are taking care of the Jews. He's literally thinking about how to do this. He even sent a letter to Galatia, the part that he's going to. You can see Galatia up there in the north end. He sent a letter to Galatia saying, hey, you need to start this relief fund. We don't have that letter. We don't have that letter, but I can look in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now about that collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. He's telling the church at Corinth, remember how I instructed? We don't have that letter. We don't know what he said about collecting the fund in Galatia, but he's really focused on raising funds for the church in Jerusalem. The second thing, that Paul's plotted here. He's about 50 years old. Today, I'm okay with 50. Back then, 50 was really, really old. I mean, it was really, really old. You, They didn't have long lifespan. This wasn't like the Old Testament in Noah's days where they lived some 500, 800 years. We're talking they died young. So he's 50 years old, and he's an old man considering the first century standards. So he decides, I'm going to train workers to be apostles just like I am. I'm going to go to Ephesus, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to train people to do what I do because I'm not going to be able to do this forever. Paul decided to have interns. <laughs> he was going to teach these people how to do what he does. You know what I've come to find out about interns is they don't have the same calling that I have. They're looking for their calling. Paul's literally going out to train both men and women to do what he's doing, but unless they have the same calling as Paul, it's going to be a struggle. To have the same passion, to have the same desires, to have the same motivation that Paul's got, 
But this is what he's going to do. He's going to train these Gentiles to do and represent the Gentile churches. And then the third thing that Paul's going to do is, he's like, I want to go to Rome. I want to go back to my Roman citizenship, and I want to teach the church in Rome about Jesus. He's like, I'm going to go to Spain, but then I'm eventually going to go to Rome. And he's not necessarily going to do it on this journey, but maybe an additional journey where he plants churches. In Romans chapter 15, it says this in verse 23, I have strongly desired for many years to come to you. Whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So literally, he's plotted out. I'm going to do these three things. I'm going to raise funds for Jerusalem. I'm going to train apostles to do the same work that I'm doing. And I want to get to Rome to hang out with those people and tell them about Jesus. He's getting ready to start his third missionary journey. Next week when we get here, we're going to talk a little, about, a little bit about Apollos. We get all the way to chapter 19, verse 20, and I'll show you how this breaks out. If you've got the books, this is the way it breaks out. We've obviously covered Paul's first missionary journey, and he hadn't written any letters at this point. The second missionary journey, we've covered those four letters, Galatians, James, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now he's starting his third missionary journey, and on his third missionary journey, he's going to write two letters to the church at Corinth and also a letter to the church at Rome. I'm excited because uh, we get to do Romans in here, and we haven't done Romans in here in years. We've done it probably two or three times, but to be able to get to Romans and truth of the matter is, is I've got a lot of people that can teach Romans that I want to get up here and have them go through Romans. But first, we have to go through the first letter to the church at Corinth. The first letter in Corinth, you guys, it Corinth is kind of one of the most corrupt cities that Paul builds a church in. And so he's got all sorts of issues that he's going to deal with in these letters to the church at Corinth. Some of them are pretty corrupt issues. Today, you kind of like go, oh, yeah, I kind of expect that. But back then, in Bible times, I, I, there's nothing new under the sun. There's no temptation which has seized you, which is common to man, uncommon to man. So it's like you think about all the things that are going on now. It's always happened. It's always occurred. And so Paul gets into a little bit in 1 Corinthians. But I'm excited about uh, the journey that we're going to be on Uh Think about Paul for a minute, just the passion that he had. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? It's because there was a spirit inside of him that led him and guided him and gave him assurance that he was going to be okay. What did Paul have to do? What did Paul have to do? Herb? All Paul had to do was trust. That's all he had to do was trust and follow the Spirit. 
Father, I pray for uh, our people today. I pray that you would guide us, that you would direct us. And we can hear from you. We can know you. We can hear from you. But most importantly, we can just trust you. Trust you with our walk. Trust you with our lives. Trust you with the very breath that we take. May you guide us through the chaos of this world. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.